Hey, everybody. So are you sick of me talking about inflation yet? Well, um, here comes the last word on inflation, um, or at least for the next week or so. Um, I'm, I'm becoming, I guess, kind of obsessed with the inflation numbers. And if you haven't heard, uh, as of uh, this week, the CPI came out with a 7.5% year-over-year number for January which again is the uh, the highest in uh, like 40 years. Um, things are crazy. And um, I just want to do a little bit more of a deep dive into CPI and inflation. And if you aren't completely pissed off by the end of this episode, um, well, I haven't done my job yet. So listen up and like John Wayne said, listen tight. So the CPI numbers came out um, and it's another record. And we know that the CPI uh, understates real inflation. So that 7.5% number is extra frightening. And real quick, let's look at a few individual categories that the BLS tracks and see how they've blown up. Okay, shelter up 4.4%. We're going to talk about that a bit later. Apparel up 5.5%. Food up 7%. Only 7 Electricity up 10.7%. New vehicles up 12.2%. Meat, poultry, fish, eggs, also up 12.2%. Gasoline, up 40%. That's right, 40 And topping our list, used cars, which are up 40.5%. Now, for you dumb shits out there who demand simple, concise explanations of complex economic concepts like inflation, we can look to one Senator Elizabeth Warren to detangle this phenomenon and break it down. Uh, on February 10th, she tweeted this. One clear explanation for higher inflation, question mark? Giant corporations are exploiting their market power to further raise prices, and corporate executives are bragging about the higher profits. We need to boost competition and break up these monopolies to bring down prices. Okay, so there you have it. Now, if you believe that greedy corporations are out there magically causing the price of used cars to go up 40% in a year, please turn this podcast off now. You are no longer welcome here, and you don't have the capability of understanding the very basic concepts that I share here. So you are a dumb shit. Please leave now. So for the rest of you, please stay with me. So the Fed is beginning uh, its QT to try to bring all this under control, but the verdict is still out on how long this quote-unquote transitory inflation is going to be with us. Um, but either way, I want to talk about how real inflation has real effects on real normal families. So if inflation really is 7.5%, um, you know, because the rule of 72, which you learned right here on episode number four, you know that things that you buy today are going to be doubling in price in less than 10 years. Okay. So if you're 10 years away from retirement and you're making food budgets based on today's prices, uh, you know, you got to update your spreadsheet because at this rate, today's $16 burger is going to cost you $35 in a decade. Okay. That bag of groceries that you just paid $95 for is going to be 200. You get the idea. So yes, inflation is likely going to go down. We're probably not going to see 7.5% inflation every year. But remember, the Fed balance sheet stood at around $4 trillion two years ago at the beginning of 2020. And today, it's almost $9 trillion. So what they're doing there at the Fed is creating money out of thin air 
than buying U.S. treasuries, as you know, which increases the money supply. And I've said it before, this increased money supply has to cause inflation. Uh, in fact, just a little aside here, the original definition of inflation wasn't an increase in prices. I learned this from Peter Schiff. This is not a Matt Franklin original, but get this. In the 1913 edition of Webster's Dictionary, uh, there were three definitions of inflation. One was uh, the act or process of inflating or the state of being inflated as with air or gas, distension, expansion, enlargement. Okay, no surprise there. Definition number two, again, from the 1913 Webster's inf uh, inflation, the state of being puffed up as with pride, conceit, vanity. Okay, but here was number three, undue expansion or increase from over issue said of U.S. currency. Then there was a quick definition of inflationist, noun, one who favors an increased or very large issue of paper money. Okay, so now you know that the original definition of inflation is an expansion of the actual money supply. But semantics aside, we're experiencing this insane inflation of the money supply, and as a result, we are experiencing the highest price inflation we've seen in over 40 years. Clearly, there are other factors, the supply chain, the uh, the pandemic and whatnot. But again, uh, you, you cannot take uh, monetary policy out of the equation. And again, a senior elected member of the United States Senate has the balls to come out and say, one clear explanation for higher inflation, question mark, Giant corporations are exploiting their market power to further raise prices, and corporate executives are bragging about their higher profits. We need to boost competition and break up these monopolies to bring down prices. Now, Elizabeth Warren's got to know that she's full of shit when she makes these statements. You know, I mean, they're, they're too perfectly worded for young, dumb, woke, anti-capitalist dipshits. You know, terms like giant corporations are triggers for her voters, and they bring out the exact emotional response that she wants. And I remember when I was about 16, I thought corporations were evil too. But that's just politics. And the big problem that I have with people like Liz Warren is that they pretend to be on the side of working class, quote unquote, people like you and me, but they're not. So anyway, yes, I spend way too much time thinking about inflation, but hear me out. Let's talk about normal working class folks and how inflation might affect their bottom lines. Okay, so first up, what's the median household income here in the U.S.? According to the Census Bureau, it was uh, 67.5 in 2020. Yes, that's um, household income, not individual income. So if you're a family with two kids and you're grossing 67K, if you're getting paid every other week, divide that uh, by 26 and you're looking at about $2,500 gross for your paycheck. Okay. Now, personally, I haven't had a W-2 job since 2006, so I can't remember what the deductions and whatnot look like, but you can put together a little estimate by using an on, uh, online paycheck calculator, and I found one at talent.com. So running the numbers as if my hypothetical family lives in Colorado, you're looking at a net paycheck of $1,922 every other week. So basically about $3,850 a month. Okay, so now let's plug in some expenses. Now, according to rentdata.org, the average rent for a four-bedroom house in Colorado in 2020 was $1,587. I'm going to give you numbers first for what it was like two years ago. 
also, um, Colorado, by the way, has the 18th highest rent in the country. So that's pretty close to the middle. $1,587 a month for a four-bedroom house, average. Okay, so what's the next expense on my little family's list? Food. Um, I, I, you got to love Google. College would have been such a breeze if I would have been born, tw born 25 years later. Seriously. So according to apartmentlist.com, the average family of four in Colorado spent about $845 a month on groceries in 2020. Um, so the next expensive line item on a family's budget would be childcare, but let's just keep this manageable and pretend that both the kids are in public schools and they don't need to pay for childcare. Okay. Average electricity bill in Colorado was about $90 in 2020. Auto insurance, one number I found for full co coverage was $126 a month. Say we've got two cars, so we're looking at 252 bucks there. Don't worry, I'll tally this up for you. Um, cable bill. Um, I don't know what the average cable bill was in Colorado, but I doubt it was much under 150 for internet and TV. How about a car payment? Okay, let's pretend that this nice thrifty family has one car that's fully paid for, but they're still making payments on the second one. Um, I don't have Colorado specific numbers on average car payments, but in 2020, the national average car payment was $437. So where are we now? Uh, we haven't paid for soccer, clothes, natural gas, car repairs, eating out, or anything else that comes up in normal everyday life. But all those other expenses came to $3,441. And remember, our family nets $3,844. So for all those other expenses life throws at you, they've got $400 bucks left over per month. So if you ever wondered why people aren't able to save, this is a perfect example. So now let's add inflation to the mix. Fast forward to 2022. Average rent in Colorado for the same four-bedroom house that was $1,587 is now $2,500. Average monthly grocery cost is now $925 a month. Energy bills are up to $98. So basically, my family's fucked. Mom's going to have to get a second job and the kids aren't going to be playing soccer this year. Wait a second. If rent in Colorado isn't even in the top 10, but our family's monthly rent went up by almost $1,000, that sets off an alarm, or at least it should. So remember, according to the BLS, the latest CPI numbers reflected a 4.4% increase in cost of quote-unquote shelter. Now, this, my friends, is total bullshit. And again, as I've said before, the CPI is not an accurate depiction of actual costs for most American families. So for single family homes, the national aggregate average increase in rent was 10.2%. And you want to know why that wasn't higher? Well, because shitholes like Portland, San Francisco, and other cities that are circling the bowl have seen year-over-year -year decreases in rent as people escape to places, well, like Colorado, which brings down the average, okay? So uh, that's single-family homes. What about apartments? Okay, well, the BLS, um, again, told you the cost of shelter went up only by 4.4%. Well, two-bedroom apartments are up 18.3% year-over-year. And again, these are national averages. Um, and one-bedroom apartments are up 22.1%. Okay. So apologies, this has been a very disorganized way to make a point. But the main thing that I'm trying to get across is that for a lot of us, inflation is an inconvenience. It's an irritant. Like for me, Thursday, I, I met a buddy for happy hour. 
And the place where we met, I go to regularly in the summer because they've got like uh, lots of outdoor tables. They got a good beer list and reasonably good food. And it's typically bar fare, but they also make really good pizzas. Um, so the last time I was there in September, these small pizzas were 14 bucks. Not bad. And um, now they're 19 Okay, so yeah, up 35%. And this is not a giant corporation run by greedy guys in boardrooms. This is a local restaurant owned by a local dude who walks around, sometimes half in the bag, but always friendly, asks how your dinner is, and actually cares about his customers. He's not trying to fuck me. He's just trying to stay afloat. And anyway, for, for a lot of us, like I said, these are just inconveniences. But what about my family in Colorado? There's a good chance that they can't afford a thousand dollar hit because the rents are skyrocketing. You know, these are the kind of budgetary bombs that force people to move to less desirable parts of town, maybe less safe parts of town, you know, maybe to a suburb with more crime and bad schools. You know, maybe on top of that, the parents have to commute longer distances and therefore get less time with the kids. Maybe the kids in their shitty new school start hanging out with the wrong crowd and start smoking crack or worse. You, you get my point. And if dad was putting away, you know, a little money in his 401k before, he isn't now. So long story short, the hidden costs of inflation for normal working class families can literally be catastrophic. So what's the solution? Well, there isn't one. The current system is going to remain the current system. Yes, the Fed is already tightening, but a couple 50 basis point pops and our Colorado dad's 401k that he can no longer afford to contribute to is going to crater because, well, we've talked about it before. The increased interest is going to tank the S&P. It's just a matter of time. So you got to protect yourself, pay attention to this stuff and start arming yourself with the knowledge that you're going to need to make smart choices as we approach some terrible economic times. Me personally, I'm going to get into a couple more apartment syndications. Um, you know, with those exploding rent numbers on the one and two bedroom apartments, my, my feeling is that I can't go wrong in this realm. You know, as the markets start taking a dump, my guys are going to be raising rents and cap rates are going to pop. Anyway, just please join me in taking this stuff seriously. I've said it a million times, taxes and inflation are the two two biggest threats to your wealth. And, you know, when the IRS is fucking you, at least you know they're back there and you know that you're going to get a receipt. But inflation is slow, it's creeping, and it's insidious. You know, it's, it's like that pizza. Once I've had it a couple more times, I'm going to forget there ever was $14 pizzas and I'm going to just keep moving forward. Anyway, end of sermon. Next up, if you were questioning whether or not crypto was ever going to go mainstream, well, I think we have an answer because Wells Fargo, of all places, just put out a special report on cryptocurrencies. And in that report, the two key takeaways were, number one, cryptocurrency users are growing globally and rapidly off a low base. And number two, cryptocurrencies appear to be near a hyper adoption phase similar to that of the internet during the mid to late 1990s. So why is this important? Well, 
When these huge overregulated institutions jump out of their respective comfort zones and give what's basically a brand new asset class their stamp of approval, well, it means they're probably right. We're approaching the hyper adoption phase, you know, but it was funny because predictably <laughs> on this report, right at the end of the first page, they say this about what it might mean for investors. Quote, we believe that cryptocurrencies are viable investments today, even though they remain in the early stages of their investment evolution. We recommend professionally managed private placements for now as the investment landscape is still maturing. Okay, I love that. So basically, don't go buy it yourself. Make an appointment to see your Wells Fargo investment advisor so he can get a nice fat commission off whatever private placement he puts you into. So I have a feeling Wells Fargo doesn't really have any investment clients under the age of 80, so it's, it could be good advice. The only person that I know personally who deals with them to manage their portfolio is my 87-year-old dad. Um, in fact, you know, I had no idea that they even did investment management until he had told me that he moved his money to Wells Fargo. Anyway, I just thought that that little self-serving word of warning was pretty funny. Either way, there are some good tidbits in this report, so I'll put a link in the show notes. You know, there aren't really any surprises, but they do a good job in drawing the parallels between internet adoption and cryptocurrency adoption. Um, here's a little bit uh, more from the report. We see cryptocurrencies in the, quote, early but not too early investment stage, which is why we have emphasized investor education. The thrust of our view comes from global cryptocurrency adoption rates, which have quickly accelerated from a low base. Cryptocurrencies have been following an adoption pattern similar to other new advanced technologies such as the internet. Again, this is nothing new, but the source is what actually makes this interesting to me. Remember, there are about 19 million Bitcoins in existence right now. Okay. And it's estimated that, you know, three to 5 million of those have been permanently lost. Like the owners died or misplaced their keys or dumped their laptop or whatever that had their wallet or uh, wallet address and the private key stored on it. So let's say that that leaves 15 million Bitcoins available in the supply. Well, of that 23% of the Bitcoin supply is held by wallet addresses that haven't been active in five years or more. So those are some long, long-term holders that you could surmise are unlikely to sell. Okay, so that leaves now about 11 and a half million coins for the entire planet to fight over. And of that, the actual liquid supply is probably half that in reality. So as of 2020, there were over 20 million millionaires in the US. Okay, and according to one site that I found right now, there are 56 million millionaires worldwide. So what's going to happen to the price of Bitcoin when half of all the millionaires decide to put just 5% of their net worth into Bitcoin? As you know, 5% of a million is 50,000 bucks. So most millionaires have more than a million. So if 28 million people out there decide that they want to buy from one to 10 Bitcoins, well, you get the picture. Things are going to get crowded really fast. And if there's only a total of 11 million coins to fight over, things are going to get real. Anyway, as for me, while we're in this flat period under 60K, I'm buying. And if institutions like Wells Fargo keep coming out and telling us that they recommend buying Bitcoin, things have got to go parabolic at some point. It's only a matter of time. 
Okay, again, link to that report will be in the show notes. That's it for today. Uh, time for me to go watch the Super Bowl and check out all the crypto commercials. Have a great week, and I will be back at you soon. Cheers. Nothing in this podcast is meant to be financial, legal, or tax advice. Though there's some kick-ass information here, it's for informational purposes only. Take control of your retirement planning, but get professional counsel if you need tax, legal, or financial advice. For more content like this, join my mailing list at rogueretirementlounge.com. And if you have questions about retirement investing, entrepreneurship, business, or anything else, my email address is matt at rogueretirementlounge.com.